But this is a, a rich text that we find ourselves in here in Romans chapter 9. We're in particularly verses 19 through 29 this morning as we we're looking through this text. And I love this text as we are working our way through it. And even the book of Romans, the more we spend time in this book, the more I appreciate it because it teaches us how to think biblically. The book teaches us how to think God's thoughts after him. Many times you can go to a passage and you'll see one passage that gives us an idea and moves on. But there are few books that lead us from one thought to the next thought to the next thought and trains our mind to think as God thinks, to understand the will of God and the ways of God accordingly. So I think through the scriptures, the book of 1 Corinthians is a lot like that, as the Corinthians had written to uh, Paul a series of questions, and Paul answers those questions and lays out. The book of Romans is a systematic defense of Paul's philosophy of ministry, of his defense of the gospel. And as he is defending the gospel with each idea, he is answering the questions that come up, the very questions that oppose the gospel that he is preaching, and he's giving answers to those questions. And we come into chapter 9, and it comes to this most profoundly rich doctrine, the doctrine of election, and Paul is walking us through the significance of this particular doctrine. And he's training us to think as he thinks, and to think as God would want us to think, and he's guarding us and setting up guardrails lest we go off into one direction or another in error. I was reminded even between services is one who came up and says, I know what you've been saying. I still don't agree with you. So that's fine. But you're not wrestling with me. You're wrestling with what God is saying. If you can show where I am inserting my own will or my own language or my own assessment, reject it. My kids do. You can do it too. I give you permission. But if it's God's word, if it's God's message, well, then you are not answering to me. You're answering to him. You have to answer to why God said one thing and you decided something else. Why why God said one message, you decided you knew better or your God was different and then God must answer to your wisdom. You have to answer that before God, not me. And just as I have to answer for every word I say, in fact, I have a judgment, as James says, I will have a double judgment. For every word I say, so certainly we want to be very careful for how we speak and what we say and what we teach because it's representing God and his message. So I love this as Paul lays this out because he walks into those questions that everybody walks into when you start talking about sovereignty and election and predestination and salvation and how all these things work together and Paul just brings them out. And I rejoice in it because, you know, for many years uh, I have waited just for those texts to bring it out. And here we are right in the middle of it. And then Paul is teaching us again how to walk through these discussions. And again, most critically, he's teaching us how to think biblically and reason biblically. And I recognize that we live in a day and age where this is becoming more and more difficult to do. Because where would you go to learn how to reason biblically? Where would you go to learn? 
You're not getting it from the news. You're not getting it from newspapers or any other medium communicating to you what's happening in the world. They're not teaching you how to think biblically. In fact, you're getting quite the opposite, a different ideology altogether, one that is hostile to God and his ways. And then if you compound that, we live in a day and age where the average church communicator, the pastor getting up, doesn't come and open the scriptures. He comes and says to his congregation, God spoke to me. Going beyond the scriptures to some other source, and now we come to rely upon that. We no longer turn back to the scriptures to say, what, does God, what has God said? What is he saying as he has revealed his will? We are now looking for these outside revelations. And once somebody has given one of these outside communications of God, well, now he is untouchable. Oh, I mean, we're going to go against God if we go against what he has revealed. Who are we to say anything? And so now we don't think anymore. We don't think critically about what's said. We don't question anything because we can't. And now we're subtly forgetting how to think biblically. We're no longer reasoning according to the scripture. We're no longer doing what Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah recorded in Isaiah chapter 1 when God says, come, now let us reason together. Come, let us think clearly. Let us think accurately. Let us get a proper assessment. Let us wrestle through these things. Reason through them. We've moved away from thinking biblically, critically from the scriptures. And there are consequences. Certainly will be consequences to our spiritual life. Paul lays that out in Ephesians chapter 4 when he talks about us being transformed by the renewing of our minds. Talks about the same kind of thing in Romans chapter 12 that we are transformed. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, notice, by the renewing of your mind. What you're thinking about, what you're dwelling on, what you're reasoning through, this is going to lead to transformation or it's going to lead to corruption. What you reason about, reason through, and think upon is very important. So I love this text here in Romans 9 through 11 because Paul is systematically working through the questions, bringing them up and addressing them and then navigating through the issues. And it seems in many ways, as God is answering the questions, he is not answering according to our liking, at least for some of us. God, that's not fair. It's not fair that you're operating this way. You can't operate that way, and the heart is questioning. And I love it that Paul just doesn't avoid it. That's the way verse 19 starts. What, shall, what will you say to me then? Why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? I mean, how can God still judge the sinner if he hasn't chosen them? How can God still judge? How is it fair? Paul does not back away from the fairness question. And I would say to the average Arminian who's wrestling with this and says, I cannot accept this very doctrine, what you're wrestling with is you don't like God's answer. It's not that God hasn't spoken. It's not that he hasn't said something. It's not that he isn't clear because he's very clear. You just don't like his answer. You don't want to accept what it is that God has said about that. And I understand for all of us, this is very difficult to walk into because our hearts are revealed in the middle of these discussions. And there are answers, there are questions that are brought up that we can't give answers to. 
and we feel vulnerable or weak in the midst of that. Well, what if there's a really good question that came out and I don't have an answer to it and God doesn't give me any clarity to it? How should we think through this matter? And again, Paul here in his marvelous grace walks us through how to think about these profound doctrines and he gives us some safeguards so as to protect ourselves and to protect our thinking so that we don't go out of bounds when we're wrestling with these great doctrines. Again, I want to point out to you when we talk about this idea of election, this isn't an idea imported upon the text. This isn't something like uh, somebody is sitting around saying, you know what, I got this great idea for the whole church, election. Now I'm going to go sell it to everybody. No, it's the actual words used by the biblical writers. Paul, multiple times, even in Romans 9 and 11, uses this word. Let me show you. Look back at verse 11 of chapter 9. It's this, For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, eklegade, his calling, his choice, his choosing, would stand not because of works, but because of him who calls. The word eklegade is the word choice or calling. The idea where we get election from. And then in verses 15 through 18, Paul just drives home this point even more, uh, particularly in verse 16. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or on the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. God shows mercy to whom he wills, as verse 17 says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raise you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. God does as he pleases. And the heart of man struggles with that. No, God, you have to operate according to our understanding of justice. You have to operate according to what we see as right. And yet here, he just lays it out. Of course, then, the question of fairness comes out. Turn over to chapter 11. The same theme of election comes out in Romans chapter 11. First, in verse 5, notice what he says there. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious eklegain, choice, election. Come down to verse 7. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but those who were, notice, chosen, eklegain, obtained it, and the rest were hardened. It wasn't, again, their, their own doing. It wasn't by their pursuing. It was by, again, the work of God. He has chosen. Jump down to verse 28. Again, the word comes out. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, eklegain, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. The exact same word used in each of those passages, all demonstrating God's choosing, God's selecting, God's electing work. 
The point is, we're not bringing an idea that does not exist out there. We are simply unfolding what God has said about his activities. That is what everyone has to give an account for, for what God has unfolded and revealed from his word. Now, I understand, we can turn back to Romans chapter 9. Well, pastor, just because it's said doesn't make it any easier. And I absolutely agree with you. Because of what the scriptures say about God's activity doesn't mean that this is easy to understand. doesn't mean that it answers every one of our questions. It doesn't mean that we aren't going to struggle with the difficulties and have to yield in faith to what is revealed. Certainly all of that is true. But what Paul does here in these verses in 19 through 29 is he gives us some safeguards for how we ought to think in the midst of these grand doctrines. Because we can go too far in unbelief or in hardness or heart or in fear. We can go too far and misrepresent God and misrepresent his message. Or even fill our hearts with certain fears that we oppose what is revealed and we ought to guard ourselves. And Paul demonstrates that in these verses. And the very first truth that we saw last week, the very kind of first guardrail for us is this. No matter when we come to the scriptures and we're studying these things out, here's one thing we know for certain. God is always just in his activities. Always just. There is no injustice in God. There's no wickedness in God. There is no evil whatsoever in God and his purposes. He is absolutely just. He is gracious. He is loving. He is merciful. He is without fault. He dwells in unapproachable light. He is without sin. He is not tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. He is a powerful and perfect creator who accomplishes his perfect will, and in all of it is always just, loving, and good. In fact, this is where Paul starts. When verse 19 brings out the fairness question, verse 29 goes to then the reminder of who we're talking about here. We're talking about God's activities Will the creation stand over God and judge the creator? That's the question at hand. What right does the thing molded have to say to the molder, why did you make me like this? What right does the creation have to speak back against God? To which then Paul turns in verse 21, this is what we saw last week, he turns to this question Does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Basically, the question that Paul brings out here is a line of reasoning, again, that didn't start in the in the academic world that Paul was dwelling in. It didn't start with an apostle deciding, you know what, how am I going to get God off the hook here? It started with an apostle reading the Old Testament who went back to Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 16 and used God's line of reasoning on Israel. He used it on this group here. And what did God bring out there? He brings out this idea of a potter and clay. Does not the potter have the right over his creation to do what he pleases? Can he tell the clay and create out of the clay what he desires? And the answer is emphatically yes. 
We saw this last week from Job chapter 38 through verse, or through chapter 41, uh, that uh, when Job was opposing the work of God and questioning and his, uh, his own uh, inst- uh, counselors were giving him advice that was questioning the work of God, Job and was, reminding, was reminded by God, will the fault finder find fault with God? No. And then God goes on for four whole chapters. Where were you when I laid the earth? And where were you when I measured it out? And where were you when I created these beasts? And where were you when I made this powerful beast? And who are you, puny little man, against the greatness of the rest of creation? Point is that God is sovereign, just, and powerful, accomplishing his purposes, and his creation does not call him into account. For he is, again, beyond doing evil. God is just and perfect in all of his ways. So that when we come to the scriptures and God unfolds his marvelous work and he begins to lay out how he is operating, the one thing we must remind ourselves as we begin is there is no injustice in God in this activity. No injustice at all. Because not one of us can create out of nothing, not one of us were there when he created all of this so that he is not accountable to us in any way. But now Paul gives us two more safeguards. In verse 22 through verse 24, he gives us the next safeguard to guard our thoughts and to help us filter our questions. And this next safeguard is this, that God is motivated by his glory. God is motivated by his glory. Notice what the text says. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. This is the next safeguard for us as we are thinking about these profoundly rich doctrines and we are moving in we can begin to understand the second thing, what God's motivation is in doing all these works, and is this, for the revelation of his glory. God is concerned about revealing the riches of his glory. This isn't an idea that is new. This is clear. In fact, if you turned over to Ephesians chapter 2, Uh, Let me just show you two places in Ephesians 2 and in 3 where God makes this known. You remember Ephesians 2 where God talks about the heart of man. You know, in verse 1, dead in your trespasses and sins. Verse 2, which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Jump down to 5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. And we've been, verse 6, raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. And now, verse 7, here's the key. So that, why did he do all this work? 
Why did he rescue us? Why did he make us alive? Why did he place us in Christ? Why did he sit us at the right hand of Christ? Verse 7, so that, the purpose clause, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, so that God might show all of his heavenly hosts how gracious he is. You think about this. God was able to create a being, the angels, who never sinned and who will dwell around him for all of eternity. That angel race can see uh, God and we would see them and recognize God didn't need to save any one of us because he is able to create a group that be around him, worship him and praise him for all of eternity who will be much more powerful than we are, much more majestic than we are. And yet, Verse 7, so that in the ages to come he might show surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Who is he showing that to? Well, turn back to Romans 9. You thought I was on, uh, got distracted. I did not. Romans 9 gives us the answer. Actually, even Ephesians 3 goes in and adds to that. But here, Romans 9, Paul begins to unfold this here. And he brings it out in this marvelous way, and it reminds us that here's what we ought to be thinking about. God is concerned about his glory. And it's this glory which he's going to demonstrate for all of eternity, but it's this glory that he's even revealing right now. And I think fundamentally, when there's difficulty, doctrinal difficulty that we're having as we're wrestling through the text, one of the reasons why we're wrestling and having these difficulties and not seeing is because our objectives are different. One has the objective of finding fairness for man, and another has an objective of finding the glory of God. Therefore, the objectives are different, therefore we're seeing the details differently. So what should our objectives be? Well, again, Paul lays it out right here, 22 to 24. Notice the question and how Paul starts this. Verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? I love this verse because it is so rich and heavy. In fact, there's two parts to this verse. There's the question, and then there's this parenthetical thought right in the middle of this question. Two parts to it. Notice the question. What if God endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? That's the question. What if God was patient? So what? So what if that he was patient and he waited and he didn't show his power? What's the point? And then the parenthetical thought, and this really adds the significance to it. Here's the parenthetical thought. Although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known. The question is, God is ready to show his wrath, ready to show his judgment, ready to pour out his wrath, but he doesn't. What if he endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? That is the profound question. And this is where we we move into the topic of what's fair and unfair. And I think this verse here answers the fairness question. 
When we say, is God fair? Well, to us, yes. To himself, no. So what do you mean? Notice again how the text brings out here. He was willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known. He is, the parenthetical thought is he is ready, he is able, he is desiring, but he doesn't. If there's any unfairness, it is against himself that he is patiently waiting to reveal these things out. That he is not expressing that anger, that he is not pouring out his wrath, that he is not bringing immediate judgment. Again, remember, if you turn back to chapter 6 and verse 23, what is the immediate judgment? He tells us in verse 23 of chapter 6, for the wages of sin is death. The immediate consequence of any transgression is death. God immediately brought it. Immediately gave man what he deserved after his transgression, it would lead to death, immediate death. The very fact that a sinner breathes another moment, even after transgressing the law of God and the way of God, is an expression of his rich mercy and patience. So Paul brings out this question here and he says, All right, yeah, is there a fairness? Issue? Well, if there is a fairness issue, it isn't with God's judgment upon the wicked. There is a fairness issue. It isn't against the uh, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. That's not against them. The fairness issue is against God himself that he is suppressing the demonstration of his power and judgment upon the wicked. That is where the fairness question is. To which then, Paul says, all right, answers the question, then why would he be this patient? Why would he not pour out his wrath immediately? Why wouldn't he immediately bring judgments? By the way, I think this verse answers for us the only reason why we're having any struggle at all about what seems to be fair in God's dealings is because he is patient, because he is long-suffering, because he has overlooked the transgression for a time until the fullness of time. Why does he overlook? Well, verse 23 and 24 gives us an answer to that. Notice verse 23. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. God was patient for this reason, to demonstrate his glory. So what J. Adams calls the grand demonstration. Grand demonstration is that God took upon himself an injustice. God waiting to reveal his divine wrath, waiting to, deve- to reveal his punishment, patiently receiving that so that he can do something greater. And that greater thing is the revelation of his glory. That's what verse 23 says. To make known. That is, to bring to light that which is hidden. To bring to our understanding, to bring into revelation, to make it known and understood. What? The riches of his glory. Listen, when you fight against this particular working of God, what you're arguing with is not the reasoning of man. What you're arguing against is the glory of God. 
His glory is what he is seeking to reveal. This is what he is concerned about. He is seeking to reveal his glory upon, notice, vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. This is so profound. God is motivated by revealing his glory and showering it upon these vessels of mercy. Of that term, mercy, there, because really then it captures for us all the ideas that are brought out here. Because you'd ask the question, well, then what is glory? What is this all about? And and this glory, um, which he's prepared beforehand, what exactly is being revealed here? And I think it's captured in this idea of mercy. Think about it. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is God giving to us something we don't deserve. That's grace. We have grace and newness of life as we're given the Spirit. We have grace given to us as we have the Word of God given. We have grace in fellowship with one another. On and on the grace of God goes. He's poured out. We're lavished with His grace. Mercy, on the other hand, is God withholding from us what we do deserve. The one deserves punishment, God withholding that, he is being merciful. Mercy is then the withholding of judgment. Grace is the giving of something we haven't earned. And with this then, this mercy, the withholding of judgment, we see all the riches of God's glory. Think about it. Because we receive mercy, we receive forgiveness. The forgiveness of our sins, that which our great debt in which we had is covered in Christ. That debt is taken out of the way. That is a mercy, a grace of God, a glory of God revealed in his forgiving of sins. We also see his great love. His glory is revealed in the great love of God that he sent his son into the world who lived a perfect life, who bore our transgressions and went to the cross having taken our penalty so that the wrath of God fell upon him rather than falling upon us. We see the grand love of God which is demonstrated as a demonstration of his glory. And of course, mercy, the withholding of judgment. This glory is revealed. In God's patient working. Now, let's drill down into this a little bit more because some questions come out in our minds when we think about these things. I mean, I've heard it a number of times. Somebody come and just say, do we have to talk about sin every week? All the time. It's about sin I mean, can't we just have one little series that's really light and fluffy and then go back to the hard series? Right. I mean, do I always have to come to church and feel miserable when I leave? I mean, I come here to be lifted up, not to feel miserable. Uh, Can't we focus on something else? And then, of course, the comments will be, well, pastor, don't, you know, are you more holy than us? Don't you recognize you're a sinner too? Of course. We come in and we see there's so much sin around. There's sin in my heart, sin in the world. And then we have to hear about it on Sunday. Is it just too much? And I think Romans 9.23 is the answer to that question. No way. It is not too much. 
Because in understanding sin, we must then understand the rich mercy of God demonstrated towards us that causes us to see the riches of his glory, which he has prepared for us. Prepared to lavish upon us that we would see his glory, that we would reflect his glory. Both are going to happen for all of eternity, and it's starting right now. We are reflecting his glory as we are, have believed upon Christ and live in newness of life, and we are seeing his glory when we recognize, yes, I deserve punishment, and yet God was merciful. I deserved the judgment, and yet he was patient with me. I deserved condemnation, and yet he overlooked. He gave me grace and mercy instead. See, if you lower the sin equation, say, well, it's not that big of a deal, you know what's also going to suffer is the glory of God. You will not see God in his glory. You will stand over God as his judge rather than come under him and see the riches of his glory if you minimize sin. And that's exactly what Paul is out here. He endured with much patience Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Even though he desired to show otherwise, he endured them so that he would make known the riches of his glory. So we make it evident to all. And I think about this oftentimes. I you know, certainly come to this passage and I have to proclaim something from the pulpit and it is heavy. You should know that I suffered for seven days before you did. As I started on Monday, led all the way up to Sunday, I was sitting under that weight all week, so I'm just sharing with you the pleasure that I had all week and suffering under that conviction. But we did all of this together to get to this point that we would see the marvelous, glorious work of God among us. We don't deserve any of this. But then he would save and rescue us and set us free. Show us his mercy and his love and his kindness and his grace. That we'd be able to walk in newness of life, free from fear, condemnation, and death. This glory is revealed. So that what should happen for us is this, that we ought to be the first people identifying the glorious work of God. We ought to be the first because we know our sin and we know the sin around us. We can see it plainly. We can look around in a hostile world that is living in anarchy and opposed to God and we can see its corruption and where it's leading to and we are pleased that God rescued us and opened our eyes. Not because we were somehow better, but because he decide, decided to show his glory in us and through us. So we ought to be the first to give response to God and his glory. So that when we come into these doctrines, we know this. I'm coming in to understand them so that I can better understand his glory. And anything that robs him of that glory, you're basically going against God's purposes. And uh, you know what? I've read the Old Testament a number of times. It doesn't go well for somebody who does that. It doesn't go well against uh, stubborn people that resist God. And when he says in verse 22, he is willing to show his wrath, willing to demonstrate his power, willing to express it, and yet he patiently endures it, we ought to pay attention to that and recognize there's a good reason. And that good reason is then he highly values the glory that is going to be revealed. That's why I think Ephesians 2, 7 passage is so profound 
that for all of eternity, God is going to be magnifying his grace in redeemed humanity. Through the marvelous work of Christ, what he's accomplished. And then, for us to continue, verse 24, it doesn't stop there, as if it's just in us. Notice how magnanimous Paul says this glory is expressed. Verse 24, even us whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. Demonstrating this marvelous work against all of his chosen ones from the Jew and the Gentile. All these vessels which he has called out for different purposes, different reasons. He's called them to magnify his glory. Jews have not been forsaken as Paul is laying out in his gospel message. He hasn't abandoned his people. He hasn't forsaken them. He's still calling out. He's still choosing. And as we're going to see when we get to chapter 11, even if from the time of Christ until the final working of the Lord, even if all of that time they lived in hostile rebellion against God so that the gospel would go to all the Gentiles, God is still going to fulfill his promises and redeem. He's going to elect. He's going to call his people to himself so that the stubborn resistance of man, the sin of man, is not going to oppose God and his good purposes. So, second guardrail to our, our thinking when coming to these profoundly rich doctrines is that we think aligned with God's purposes and God is motivated and consumed by his glory. The last one, quickly, is evidence in verse 25 through 29. And the last guardrail is that we think according to God's revelation. We think according to what God has revealed. It's exactly what Paul does in 25 through 29 is he quotes a series of Old Testament prophets. From the prophet Hosea to the prophet Isaiah, he strings together a series of Old Testament quotes. And if you go back and you read through the commentators, commentators blow a gasket on this. Because it's like, well, he's not exactly quoting the verses, and he's not getting it right. And, and what, is, what is he doing here in all of this? And I think Paul is weaving together a series of ideas to demonstrate this point. Starting with Hosea. It says in verse 25, Hosea says, I will call these are those who are not my people, my people, and her who is not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in that place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Goes back to Hosea and says, those who are hopeless, those who are on the outside, those who were rejected, those who had no hope, God is going to call and say, you're my people. That's the Old Testament promise. Promise is that God is going to take the weak, the distressed, He's going to take the outcast, the outsider, He's going to take the one who does not deserve, and He is going to rescue them. Then He goes to Isaiah the prophet, verse 27, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the numbers of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. The idea is, yes, there are a lot of Israelis. There's a lot of people living in the nation of Israel. They have as many as the number of the sands of the seas, but there's only a few. There's only a remnant. God is selective. God is 
in his purposes and dealings. So then again, any question about fairness isn't called into question because this is exactly what God has always been warning Israel of. Always been telling them of this. And then in verse 28, For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. In verse 29, And just as Isaiah foretold, Unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left us to a, a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. The final thought is then God's judgment is coming quickly. God's judgment will come severely. God's judgment, if it's just left to uh, him, none of us would be able to stand. We'd all be wiped out. But God has been faithful in his dealings and he is going to be able to preserve That line of reasoning from the Old Testament through the prophet Hosea and Isaiah demonstrates Paul's reasoning through this. God is fair in his dealings and he rescues the outsider. He is faithful to call to himself those whom he has promised to deliver and to save. And there is always a remnant and he is preserving this remnant And this judgment of God is coming. It's going to come swiftly and it's going to be thorough. None will be able to escape it. And if we stood on our own, none of us would be left. We'd be like Sodom and Gomorrah. But he preserves and protects. It's that third guardrail here is this. When we come to these divine doctrines and we start looking at them, we are wrestling with them according to what God has revealed in his word. We're not coming to philosophy. We're not coming to man's reasoning. We're not coming to our sense of justice and fairness. We're not coming to our vantage point and God has to account to us. We go back to what he has revealed and operate according to the principles he lays out and only go as far as he goes and say what he says. Of course, then we leave the unanswered questions to God. Just because we ask the question doesn't mean God has to answer it. It's not beholding to us. And I suppose if any one of us could create out of nothing and can rival his creative work, well, then maybe we might be in a place to be able to demand God give us an answer. But I know of none in such a place. So I think about this oftentimes. They come down to difficult questions and why people land in difficult and different positions. It's typically because of this right here. One has operated according to certain guardrails. Others have gone beyond it. When I say this, God is never called into question about his justice and fairness. It's never a, a thought I allow to be entertained because then God would no longer be God and nothing would make sense. So I'm always guarded by that where others are calling God's revelation into question, just can't go there. That's why we differ. Or we differ because I'm concerned by what God has said about his word. He's revealing his glory, and man, someone else would be concerned by something else. sense of fairness, a sense of justice, a sense of my dread. How could God not save my neighbor or my friends or my family member? I, I can't reconcile that. Listen, we should be concerned about his glory. And we don't know his purposes. We don't know what he's accomplishing yet. And then this last one, being consumed and thinking according to the scriptures. There are many thoughts we have that go beyond the scriptures. 
Those things are unprofitable for us. We must stay within the guidelines of what the scriptures have revealed for us. That is safe and protects us. And I love what Paul does here in 25 through 29. He demonstrated what he proclaimed to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he said to the Corinthians, these things were written for our instruction. And then here, Paul uses that instruction for himself as a fulfillment of his particular argument. God is accomplishing his purposes. Oftentimes, recognize there's so much debate because we're not coming to the scriptures and thinking as God would want us to think. We stand over it. We put it on trial. We put God on trial. We insert our fears. We insert our lusts. We insert our will. When we ought to be coming to God's word as humble servants, learning from our God. And what, what do we learn then? We learn that he is just, and we learn that he is filled with glory, and we learn that his ministers have always communicated this marvelous message to us so that we are left with clarity as how to navigate through this world. It doesn't make the answers easier, but it does make our heart respond in praise to God more. It doesn't make the implications of God's dealings any easier when we see a death of a loved one or we see somebody in open rebellion and our hearts are grieved. But what it should do for us is to cause us to glorify God and to praise Him and to depend upon Him to do His marvelous work. And again, the very question would keep coming out then, well then, if it's about God's saving, about God's electing, if it's about his choosing, then how is anyone saved? And you just sit behind your pulpit and do nothing because you don't care because all you're trusting is God's sovereignty and his electing. And I say, well, actually, on the contrary, in obedience and faith, I go preach the gospel because that's what we're commanded to do. Romans chapter 10. And that's what we'll get to. Next week, when we come back, we'll look at Romans 9, 30 through 33 and answer the question, how is anyone saved? And since I keep leaving you on a cliffhanger, I'll answer it for you by faith. And I'll explain it next week.